Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Think Ahead, seven decisions you can make today for the God-honoring life you want tomorrow. Written and narrated by Craig Groeschel and available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is the place uh, every uh, time where I invite you to overhear some conversations that I have with thinkers and leaders about various topics. And of course, as you know, here on Signposts, we look for those pointers toward grace, what uh, Walker Percy used to call signposts in a strange land. And today I want to talk about a book called Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope by Jasmine Holmes that has just been uh, published by InterVarsity Press. I loved this book. I thought that this book was not only substantive uh, in remarkable ways, but also beautifully written. And whenever those two things can come together, I just find that really compelling. And this book was one of those things. It's hard to it's hard to categorize this book into only one category because it's memoir, it's theology, it's psychology, it's sociology, it's political theory, it's parenting, uh, and a whole lot of other categories that are all put together uh, in the format of a mom writing a series of letters uh, to her son, her, her right now a very, very small uh, son. Jasmine Holmes, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on Signpost today. Thank you so much for having me. I was really both fascinated and moved by this book. And and one of the things that moved me was the the way that you did it in letter form in this really personal uh, sort of way. And maybe... I lost my dad uh, earlier uh, this year, and he wasn't somebody who wrote things down. And I think uh, maybe the only note that he ever wrote to me uh, was at a really difficult uh, time in my life, and he just wrote me this note. And I have it, I've I've kept it uh, all these years, and when he died, I pulled it out and I framed it. And it's one of those things, I don't care how many times I look at it, it's going to it's going to move me. And I, I couldn't help but think as I read through this book, imagining your son in the future, uh, reading uh, this book and, and uh, just the, the personal aspect of that. And what I also really like, and you don't often see this, is that you're giving direction to your son and wisdom to your son but you're really speaking to him as someone who knows him as a present tense child, but you're speaking to him as a future tense man. And that's hard to do, uh, to, to understand. You're going to be different. You're going to have your own life and your own ideas and to speak to him. 
What gave you the idea to, to do the book this way? It was a few things. Um, I had read the same year that I first started writing Mother to Son. I had read The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin for the first mm -hmm. time. And he has his letter to his nephew there. And I read it and it was really affecting and impactful um, for me. And then I was teaching. Uh, I live in Jackson, Mississippi, and I teach in a pretty much all white private school here. And I was teaching a civil rights unit. Um, to my ninth graders and they were, it was, it was a hard year. There was a lot of just back and forth and a lot of them not agreeing with what I was saying. And, you know, it, when you're somewhere else and you talk badly about governor Ross Barnett, people are like, yeah, he was really terrible. When you talk about him here in Mississippi, one of your students is like, um, my parents, my grandparents were on his campaign. And oh, wow. yeah. We, yeah, so it's just, it's very different. Um, so I brought the fire next time into my classroom and their response to it kind of illustrated to me the power of the relational aspect of him writing to his few and the tenderness that he had really, really impacted these ninth graders and impacted me. And I started to see the um, epistolatory format is just really powerful at that point. I was also struck by you start the book uh, talking about um, you and I have a common love for uh, the prologue to John and about the word becoming flesh. And you, you talked about Mary and, and about how the, the mother-son relationship is something that's so important in redemptive history that we see it all over the, the Bible. And I, I found that moving, but also because you, you talked about having experienced miscarriage, which uh, we have as well. And you, you had a line where you say, I don't pretend to love you more than someone who's never lost a child, but I, I love you differently, uh, that there's a sense of, of um, maybe weight to it that you experience. And uh, I wonder, uh, how, how has that experience shaped your view of being a, a mom? Well, it was my first experience of motherhood was miscarriage. Um, mm. And so my husband and I, we started dating in March. We got married in October. We were pregnant by November. We had a miscarriage in December. Mm. And so it was just a year of changing from, I went from living in my parents' house to being a wife, to being a mother, to being a mother who never had to hold her child in a matter of six months. And I kind of had assumed that a lot of things about my life were going to be easy because I grew up, you know, pastor's kid, super sheltered, great family, great parents, did everything quote unquote right. And that year of my life was really difficult. And I realized that, you know, just because you're obedient to God or striving to be obedient to God doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect or easy or that you're promised children or that you're promised easy pregnancies or that you're, pro you're promised that you won't experience loss. And so Wynn's birth was just really healing for me because before him, my only experience of motherhood was loss. Mm. I, I found it interesting also that uh, you talked about how you, of course, were very familiar with, uh, with the, the narrative of uh, the, the murder of Emmett Till uh, in mm -hmm. Mississippi, Chicago and murdered in Mississippi. But you had never cried and and wept about it until you had a son. Uh, what was the what was the connection between those two things for you at the emotional level? Well, again, it was so interesting. It was through teaching um, because I had heard the story of Emmett Till ever since I was 
a kid, my parents, every Black History Month, we'd watch Eyes on the Prize. And so mm. whole documentary every single year. And it starts out with the murder of Emmett Till. And so I'd seen, I'd seen his picture. I'd seen his face in the open casket. And I'd been sad about it. But when I taught it the year after my son was born, it wasn't his face in the casket and the grotesqueness of what was done to him that affected me. It was his face before he went down south. His beautiful, innocent, like when I looked at him, I saw a little boy. Mm. I didn't see a man. I didn't see a threat. I saw a little boy. And the knowledge that people, that other people saw that child and didn't see a child really impacted me because I realized that in so many ways, as my sons grow up, I'm going to see them as tender and as children and as people who need to be protected longer than the world does. And that's a scary thought. Mm. Uh, You talked about uh, reflecting on lynch mobs, such as those who who murdered Emmett Till and many, many others. And I really stopped and pondered uh, when you you made the argument the ultimate goal was not really genocide. Mm -hmm. It wasn't to to get rid of everybody. The ultimate ultimate goal of these mobs, lynch mobs, was to keep black sons particularly, black men, young black men particularly, Mm -hmm. in check so that they would respond to authority, uh, quote-unquote authority, in a way that would appear to be compliant. And I think you're exactly right. I think that's exactly the way that this sort of reign of terror uh, works. And in the book, you took this really, I can't say obvious, because it wasn't obvious to the people uh, deluded and joining in those things at the time, but obvious at some level, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of of, uh, terrorism. And you sort of allude to it later on when you're talking about things that aren't that extreme, but you're talking about how sometimes you will have a, uh, a a tendency to respond to authority in a way that will make you appear as non-threatening and compliant as possible, I think is the way that you, you put it. Yeah. How does that dynamic work? It's such a um, an interesting dynamic because my husband and I both work in predominantly white spaces. He works at a seminary. I work at a private school. And both of us can come home from work and be like, I was in a meeting and I got really upset, but I had to work really hard to not appear angry in a way that maybe other people in our exact same position don't have to work as hard not to appear angry. Um, I've been in situations where I've said the exact same thing as a white coworker or a white colleague And Jasmine, like, why are you so mad? Calm down. Or like, I just, I feel like you're attacking me right now. Like, just, just be cool. And so from a very young age, we just learned that Black voices have to be tempered when they're speaking to white audiences so that white audiences can hear, so that we can be approachable, so that we're not appearing angry, so that we're not appearing threatening. That's like the lowest extreme, right? The highest extreme being when I've watched my husband get pulled over before and Mm. keep his hands on the wheel and be very, very obvious about everything that he's doing because he was taught that that's what a Black man has to do in order to survive a traffic stop in a way that our white counterparts maybe weren't taught. Um, So it's definitely a spectrum of trying to appear non-threatening, trying to appear non-violent, and trying to appear um, not angry, even when you're talking about things that are really upsetting. 
So how do you how do you navigate that? You're giving advice to your son in this book, and you you talk about really compellingly, I think, this sense of not wanting to appear to be uh, an angry person and having all the stereotypes come at you, and also just that that uh, desire to want to be liked. You know, the inner ring, C.S. Lewis would put it, that that we're all pulled toward. So how do you how do you when you're in a meeting like that uh, navigate how how to engage without sort of pulling yourself back? It's something that I'm still learning. Um, I had just turned thirty last year, and I told everybody like six months before my thirtieth birthday, I was like, when I'm thirty, I'm gonna have it all figured out. I just know it. Like I'm just gonna wake up, and a lightning bolt is gonna just fall from the sky, and I'm gonna have it all together. And unfortunately, that did not happen when I turned 30. I'm holding out for 40. Um, but <laughs> I hate to tell you, it doesn't happen to me. <laughs> I, keep, I keep hearing that. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Just another decade. That's all it'll take. Um, but I, so with my son, I remember he got in trouble for, he was biting in uh, daycare, the daycare on campus where I work. And he was, it's, it's a phase, all kids go through it. Six weeks after he went through it, not all kids, but a lot of kids. So six weeks after he went through it, other kids were biting too, but he was the first one to go through the biting phase. And he's also the only black boy in his class. Mm. And I was, I was so upset and so concerned and so just like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You can't be biting people. You're the only black kid. Yada, yada, yada. And I kind of had to pull myself back. And say, that's not fair. That's not fair for me to put that pressure on, at the time, a two-year-old mm-hmm. to not be a two-year-old because he's being a two-year-old in front of white people. And so it's this, this tightrope that I'm walking as a parent where I want my son to be able to be a child. Um, but I also want my son to be able to know how to navigate this world that we live in, in his brown skin. And so it's this constant give and take of, you know, is this a moment where I'm going to esteem other people more highly than myself and just let it ride, try to take the path of least resistance? Or is this a moment where I'm going to call people on their sin and be bold in that? And honestly, so much of it I've learned is just trusting the Holy Spirit, trusting the work of the Spirit to show which situation requires which thing from me. Mm. Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. 
over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. You, you have a statement uh, to your son that I highlighted uh, where you say race is a social construct and it matters. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? So often when I talk about race and justice, um, the response is, okay, race is just a social construct. Why are we using this social construct that's just made up? And why are we still using it to this day to kind of talk about heritage and ethnicity and all these things? And it is true that race is a social construct. We're all one race. We're all the human race. The concept of whiteness and blackness is manufactured a long time ago, um, but not at the beginning of time. Definitely not a creation, right? But the manufacturing of those categories has long-term consequences that we can't ignore just because those categories aren't biological in the same way that being part of the human race is biological. And I think that, I think people say race is just a social construct as a dismissive comment. But honestly, when you say that race is just a social construct, you are in that comment, whether you want to or not, offering commentary on the fact that it's a very real and present construct that still impacts us today. Hmm. I smiled with recognition as uh, not only a Mississippian, but someone who grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, uh, right at the very bottom of Mississippi, uh, when you talked about the rare occasion of a snow day in <laughs> Mississippi, because uh, I, I was, I think, 20 the first time I ever saw snow, and it flurried for about five minutes, and it was an emergency. Uh, everything shut down, everyone. Uh, and you were talking about that sense of coming from Minneapolis to Mississippi, and the snow days is the sense of oh, okay, we we get a uh, we get a skip day, we get a free day from our responsibilities. And you use that analogy with the idea of responding to the issues that we have all around us of uh, racial injustice and sin of racism and so forth. With we'll just preach the gospel. And I thought that it was it was really uh, effective the way that you talked about how often saying that really is a way of saying to people, just shut up. Mm-hmm. How should we sort of unpack that and diagnose what that looks like? Yes. Um, I So I'm from Texas. Um, and when I moved to Minneapolis, I was mystified by the idea of snow days. We never had a snow day while I was in Minneapolis. Um, they they only do snow days at the school that I was working at if it's below 30 degrees wind chill, which is very cold. And yeah. so I just never, we never got one. But at the beginning of the school year, the teachers were like, if we have a snow day, we have actual days 
built into the end of the school year onto our calendar because sometimes in the frozen tundra, we will miss a week of school because of the wind chill. But that week of school still gets tacked on to the end of the school year. So all that the snow snow day is doing is delaying the inevitable. You still got to learn. We still have to go to school. Even if I'm going to email you your assignments, you st- it's it's still going to happen. And I think that saying just preach the gospel is kind of this phrase that people use to push off the inevitable. The gospel has implications for how we live our day-to-day life. Um, anyone who preaches against abortion or preaches against abuse or preaches against fill in the blank knows that even though murder and even though abuse are not directly mentioned in the Christ died, was buried, raised after three days, come to him gospel narrative, even though it's not directly mentioned there, the gospel has implications for those things. And so saying just preach the gospel and not actually unpacking the gospel and its implications for whatever situation we're talking about is kind of pushing off things like pushing off school on a snow day. Hmm. Well, you you talked about um, being a, a woman of color in primarily white evangelical spaces, and in your case, primarily white evangelical reformed or reformed-ish uh, sorts of uh, spaces. There are a lot of people who have just had enough yeah. and walked away. I, I deal with that every day, as you know. And you talk about in the book, advising your son, it's okay to be angry, and it's also okay to say, ouch, when you hurt. And it's also okay to decide that there does come a time where you say, this is not where I should be putting my my gifts and, and calling, and should walk away. I guess the question is, how do you know how to differentiate between those times? I think for me personally, it has been if the conversation is still moving forward and if people are still trying, I will stick around. If the conversation constantly starts to hit the brick wall, if my salvation starts getting questioned, if, you know, we're putting things besides Christ as litmus tests for how saved somebody is, that's kind of when I when I'm done. When I'm like, okay. You know, we tried to talk. We tried to have the conversation here. Obviously, I'm really big on boundaries. And so if somebody says to me, look, I don't want to talk about race. I'm like, okay, that's your boundary. You don't want to talk about it. I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. That's going to impact our relationship because it's something that I talk about a lot and something that I think the gospel applies to. So I respect your boundary. And in turn, here's my boundary. Can we still work together? It depends. It depends on which which environment we're working in, which which thing we're working towards. Um, in a place like a church where I'm going to be fed and where I'm going to be bolstered and where I'm going to experience the familial life of the body of Christ, I have a much higher standard of the level of understanding and the level of engagement that needs to happen um, in this conversation than I do for other relationships and other things. Um, so honestly, I mean, again, it's just the work of the Holy Spirit. There's so much prayer involved and so much prioritizing involved and so much, I don't want to be a rock of offense just for being, just for the sake of being a rock of offense. I want my commitment to talking about the fact that 
Black men, women, and children are made in the image of God to be a reflection of what I believe about the glory of God. I don't want it to come from pride. I don't want it to come from being jaded. I don't want it to come from any of those things. And so if I'm in an environment that continues to kind of like bring out that flesh keeps rearing up, <laughs> then I kind of, I pray and I say, Lord, is this is this a time where you're calling me to persevere, where you're calling me to humbly persevere? Or is this a time where you're saying, okay, you've hit the wall, walk away now. Mm. You also talk advising your son about women and about the fact that uh, often uh, you'll you'll be told, well, you're acting like a feminist when you're you know, giving your views and, and whatever. Kind of like whenever some of us talk about race, we're called cultural Marxists and, and whatever. But you're called a feminist. How uh, – this, of course, I know is to your, your son, so you're giving direction to him for later on. But how can American evangelical Christianity do better uh, when it comes to the way that we treat women? Mm. I think realizing, I think it's Dorothy Sayers who has that, um, oh goodness, what is what is the name of her essay? It's something about women being human. And it's fantastic because it's just such an elementary thought. Of course, women are humans. Um, but I remember when I was reading Genesis at the beginning, a couple of years ago, I was doing my Bible reading plan in a year, which I never finished, but I'm finishing it this year because I'm 30 and that's what that means. Um, but we were, I was in Genesis and it was just so fascinating to me that God made everything after its own kind and Eve was made after the same kind as Adam. She's the same. She's made of the same stuff. They have the same calling. And... I had never looked at Eve like that. I had always looked at Eve as this completely alien thing to Adam with kind of a different priority and kind of a different. And I think like, of course, Adam and Eve are complementary to one another, but they're both made in the image of God. And so honestly, just in an elementary way, treating women as if they're made in the image of God, as if their thoughts and feelings and opinions and experiences matter as much as male experiences in the church matter um, and inviting them to be part of discussions where the things that are happening in the church impact women, I think is a really good first step. Mm. I, I mentioned earlier that you, you, you do this so often through the book where you, you sort of make really clear, I'm, I'm telling you what I want you to know to your son. I'm, I'm speaking this to you, but I don't expect you to be an extension of me. Um, you're, you're going to be making your own decisions, and this is a viewpoint that I'm giving to you, but you weigh it and you discern it. I mean, it's, it's really very different from a lot of uh, sort of uh, – parent-to-child kinds of written materials that are more along the lines of, here's the way, go in it, and I, I expect this from you. I was wondering as I read it, uh, because I have known people, not in terms of published books, but in terms of things that they've written to their children, um, and they've said things like, uh, I want you to read this when you're 18, sometimes a parent who knows that he or she's dying sometime or I want you to read this when you're 30, or, or, or whatever. I even knew of one person whose mother uh, knew she was going to pass away, and she left a note for every birthday. Uh, and there were things that she would say to her child, 
at 30 that she wouldn't want to say at 18 because the child wouldn't be ready for it. Is this book, would you want your son, you know, at 14 to read this, this whole book? Or would you want him to come at it later on with some experience in his life? I think I would love for him to read it whenever he's ready, because hopefully he'll read it more than once. And hopefully every time he reads it, he'll notice something different or something new or something that maybe the first time he read it, he didn't really understand. But the second time he read it, that's what stood out to him. I really hope that it's something that he can return to. And it's so funny because his little face is on the cover. So he calls it his book all the time. Like he'll just find (laughs) it somewhere and be like, oh, this is my book. This is about me. He's like, this is about me and mama. And so he already (laughs) knows about his existence. Um, But I'm really excited for him whenever he's ready. I'm not planning on ever just giving it to him and telling him to read it. But anytime he wants to pick it up, I'll be so excited to see what he thinks. Hmm. One thing that the book is not directly about, but you mention it, and I think you mention it more than once, and it's an issue that's of great concern to me, uh, and that is the high rates of maternal and infant mortality, particularly in Mississippi, and how uh, Mississippi leads the nation uh, in, in those things. What do you think uh, we can and should do about that? One of the things that statistics say is when we have Black birth workers involved in maternity, we see a sharp decrease in those numbers of mortalities. And so, um, for instance, there's a birth center in Dallas right now called Abide, and they specifically are a Christian center. They work with women and they seek out these women who otherwise would be high-risk populations. Um, And so finding centers like that, finding people like that, finding a Black midwife, finding a Black doula, finding out that somebody wants to be a midwife or wants to be a doula and funding that, honestly, I mean, that's that's what the numbers show, um, decreases those mortality rates. And I could talk about that for hours, but... Honestly, it's it's so important. And I'm really glad you asked about it because it's really important um, and something that, again, supporting Black birth workers and supporting birth centers that are specifically aware of these issues shows a decrease in those numbers of mortality. Well, and, and awareness, you talk about, and this is exactly right, the high rates of uh, C-sections, not because of medically necessary C-sections, but just as sort of a, a shortcut. Uh, for uh, for uh, medical workers in those situations in a way that can be really uh, harmful. Mm-hmm. And specifically, it happens more with with black women, and especially here. So it's just something that's that's always been that stays on my mind. And when my kids are older, I would love to become a doula, and I just can't add it to the number of balls I'm juggling right now. But for now, I just try to support people that are doing the work. Well, it's an excellent book, Jasmine Holmes. I really commend it uh, to everybody to read. And again, on so many different uh, levels, there's there's a, so much in here to uh, unpack about the gospel, so much in here to unpack about racial justice and reconciliation within the church. There's so much to unpack here about parenting uh, and about the connection between generations Uh, There's a lot. And so thank you for writing this book and thanks for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen uh, to podcasts. And you can also go to the other podcast just called Russell Moore Podcast uh, for Bible teaching and ethical 
your ethical questions that I'll do my best to try to answer uh, there. It also helps if you leave a review uh, for the podcast. It helps people to, to find us. Thanks so much for listening today. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.